So some of you have been here, we're into the sixth week now. For some of you, it's the second week of practice. And maybe you've noticed, especially if you've been here for six weeks, that sometimes the teachers say diff different things. <laughs> you know, you might hear one thing from one teacher and one thing from another, or, you know, if you've been here for six weeks, you may hear two different talks on the same topic, and they don't quite maybe line up totally even. You heard a different something. You know, maybe one teacher said, oh, stay with the body and the breathing, and then another teacher says, oh, just rest with awareness and relax. And another teacher says, oh, the seven factors of enlightenment, just pay attention to that. And another teacher says, pay attention to the feeling tone of each moment. <laughs> and then in the metta, you may also notice a little bit of difference, maybe from the first month if you've been here for six weeks, or even if you've just been here for however long. You might notice that we all teach the metta a little differently, some different styles, some different techniques of how to do the metta. And then another teacher just says, well, we're not teaching you a technique here, right? And of course, it's all true. It's all, they're all, everybody's, it's all right. It's all correct. There's nobody who's wrong. Partly because we're learning a, a, a way here. We're learning a way. A way of being, a way of understanding, a way of perceiving, a way of investigating. A way in which we are learning how to gather what we have in the service of awakening. And, and what do we have? We have the teachings of the Buddha. We have our bodies. We have our hearts. And we have our minds. And so we're gathering our resources and beginning to use them, practice them in a very full way so that we can realize the Dharma. We can realize the truth. We can awaken. We can realize the sacred, whatever language you'd like to use. And so what we're, part of the way we could think about what we're doing is we're studying the way. It's a very traditional Zen way of saying it. We study the way. And another way we can say it is we're studying a certain discipline. In this case, the contemplative discipline. We're learning how to contemplate our experience, both in the moment and in a very big sense. We're, we're taking the, the, um, the doctrine of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, and putting them into practice. And this is a discipline. This is the contemplative discipline. And remember, to contemplate is a beautiful word. The word contemplate, contemplum. It comes from the root, contemplum, meaning a templum is temple. 
as if in the temple. We're learning how to be present. We're learning how to pay attention. We're learning how to understand in a sacred way, as if in a temple. And of course, the temple here is our body and being. This is the temple of our awakening. And as we start to gather ourselves and study in this way, learn in this way, investigate in this way, there is the discipline of practice. And discipline is also actually quite a beautiful word. The root of discipline or the, the etymology of discipline is it always had to do with being a disciple. It all originally always had to do with learning and studying and educating and growing and developing oneself. It's only a much later uh, um, um, shift in emphasis where it becomes discipline becomes about uh, habits of order or subordination or to bringing things under control. A discipline to study a discipline, to give oneself to a discipline is to be a, a student, is to learn, is to... Um, the, what we're submitting to is to opening, to see what the discipline that we give ourselves to has to teach us. And so in this way, we are all disciples of the Buddha. We're disciples of the Buddha and we are studying the teachings of the Buddha, or maybe it'd be more accurate to say the Buddhas. And there's many, many different qualities that we will develop, that we will learn, that are needed, many different skills that are helpful along the way, like in any discipline. And we, we kind of misrepresent the retreats a little bit. We always talk about mindfulness and compassion, loving kindness. But there's so many other qualities that you're uh, investigating, developing, learning how to utilize in the course of your practice. You know, the, the quality of commitment or the quality of devotion or the capacity to use trial and error skillfully, skillfully. The developing the, um, the um, strength of heart and mind that can discern judgment and to see what it's like to live even for a short time, not under the, the heavy hand of judgment, but in a more open way. So we're developing openness and relaxation and experimentation. And then of course there are the, the need for uh, persistence, right? We all see how the retreats go up and down and they're not, they're not so easy at times. They're difficult at times. And then, and we think, what am I doing here? Anybody ever have that thought during the retreat? How did, how did I decide to do this? You know, and do I, what would happen if I left now? Who, who would think badly of me, you know, and could I get away with that? <laughs> One of the great gifts of being, when I was first a teacher trainee many years ago, I, was, I came to a, a retreat, a 
I don't know, a week or 10 days with one of the senior teachers who I was, I was really liked, really excellent teacher. And, uh, and, and uh, I went to go talk to this teacher about emptiness. Actually, Anna was teaching the retreat also. And, she, and I went to Anna first because I knew Anna. And, uh, and Anna said, oh, no, go talk to this other teacher. She knows a lot about emptiness. And I went, and right before I got into the room, I was at the door, and I got nervous. And, you know, and then I go in the room, and I didn't know enough to be authentic then. You know, especially I was a teacher trainee. I wanted to look good. And so I started talking about emptiness and this and that. And I didn't exactly know what I was talking about at all. And I was getting a little confused. And she, she said a few things, the other teacher. And finally, she said, well, why don't you just go to your room and think about this? <laughs> <laughs> and I went to my room. I would say about eight hours of hell <laughs> I spent in my room thinking about that, <laughs> thinking about being dismissed like that, and mostly thinking, oh my God, I've embarrassed Jack, and it's horrible, I should have never been a teacher trainee. <laughs> I know, I, I just, and can I leave? I can't leave, I'm a teacher trainee, I have to stay, you know. <laughs> I remember, I practiced, I practiced very diligently that night. You know, it's like when it's all you have, because you just feel like such shit, all you can do is practice. <laughs> so persistence at times, patience is something. You know, we don't put that on the flyers. Come, develop patience. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, doesn't really draw people in in the same way you say, open your heart. Your mind will become peaceful and free like a still forest pool. That, you know, it's, much, it's better. You know, or honesty. One of the things we cultivate here, even in the silence, is honesty, is truthfulness. Because, of course, meditation doesn't work if we're not honest with ourselves. Where are we actually? Not where do we want to be like me going to this teacher I could, if I would have been able to be honest and say, oh, I'm, I'm actually feeling nervous here right now with you, it would have been a whole different interview because I, didn't have, I wasn't authentic. I didn't have the ground of truthfulness, of honesty. And so it was very, you know, I'd, so, so then I, I couldn't speak from what I knew because I wasn't landed in what was true in the moment. And... To be honest, also, we're cultivating a certain kind of vulnerability, or maybe even a better word is transparency here. That there's nothing to hide here. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. There's nothing to deny here. Again, we don't put that on the, on the flyer, because that's, that's radical. You know, from the point of view of ego, it feels very vulnerable. From the point of view of true nature, it's just transparent. And so there's many, many qualities we're developing. One of the capacities we're developing is, and one of the areas that this discipline really takes us into and is very important for the maturation of this discipline, is paradox. 
that the world of the spiritual realm is a world of paradox. It doesn't often make sense to the usual mind that we have. And it's it's always part, generally, not always, but often part of the aha that happens for people when insight arises. It's almost like two opposing things lose their um, separate, separateness. It's like somehow we understand from a bigger view, a bigger understanding that can hold or allow or, or really gets the whole picture so that things are not split and we ourselves are not split. Even talking about just paying attention to whatever is happening moment by moment. Joseph Goldstein, he said, the wonderful paradox of the spiritual path is that all of the changing phenomena, when we see them as objects of our desire, leave us feeling unfulfilled. While as objects of meditation, they become the very vehicle of awakening. That we can pay attention to what's happening. The whole movement for desire for something that's not here, for something to go away that is here. And when, we, when we're really caught in that, it's, it's dukkha. But when we're mindful of it, it becomes the path itself. One of the beautiful teachings, poetic teachings, is the line from T.S. Eliot, who says, Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. Have you used that yet? Did you use it? Anybody? It's such a beautiful teaching, such a beautiful paradox. What does that mean? Teach us to care and not to care. Part of what it might mean, if we want to consider it, is that it's really important to care deeply. It's very serious what we're doing here. It's, it's very serious. You know, in Zen, when they talk about practice, they, they, uh, the, the Han, which calls one to practice, big, thick, wooden block of wood that they hit, you know, with a hammer and they hit it. And that's what calls you to practice. And at least at Zen Center in San Francisco, written on it says, great is the matter of life and death, birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Time passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awake, awaken, do not waste your life. And in that sense, practice is serious. It's important. It's really life and death in some sense. We could be lost in dukkha forever. Or there's this possibility for freedom. And freedom is in really the true life. Not life that's bound by history and ideas and images and whatever happened. That, that's the path to awakening. That's the means that Joseph points to, is our, is our dukkha. But as we become mindful, it becomes the doorway to a freedom that is, we could call true life or full life or life not bound 
by our identifications or our history or our past. And here's a story that kind of emphasizes the seriousness of practice. It's from a woman named Alison Wright, who was actually on her way to a Vipassana retreat that Sharda, who teaches here, Sharda Rogil, um, was teaching in Bodh Gaya with Christopher Titmus one year. And she says she was, this was about three years ago, she wrote this, so seven years ago altogether this was happening. Uh, She said, I was, oh, she said, you know, a number of years ago, a logging truck, logging truck, screeched around the corner on a remote Laotian jungle road and slammed into the bus I was riding. My left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through a window. My back, pelvis, and ribs snapped immediately. My spleen was sliced in half, and my heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed up into my shoulder. With my lungs collapsed and my diaphragm punctured, I could barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out, and it would be more than 14 hours before I received real medical care. She says, I had been headed to a meditation retreat in India where I planned to sit for three silent weeks. Instead, I lay crushed and bleeding at the side of the road. Struggling to draw in air, I imagined each breath to be my last. Breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die. I concentrated on the life force fighting its way into my lungs. Along with my breath, pain became my anchor. Pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat in meditation, fixated on the sensation of my leg falling asleep. That discomfort could hardly compare to the torment from my injuries, but I discovered that meditating could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. I've never felt, in fact, I've never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. She had trained, and when this happened, her training came forward. And so the practice is really, it's powerful. It's powerful in every dimension to heal our heart, to help us land here in a real way in this incarnation as a human-bodied being, to open our mind, to liberate our mind, to free our mind. The eye of wisdom opens for people with this practice. And so teach us to care. Teach us to really care about our life and the possibility of it. And then the other side is teach us not to care. What does that mean? So partly it might mean that even though this is very serious, life and death, 
if we make it heavy, if we make it burdensome, burdensome, if it's overlaid with some idea of how we should be, some image of how what a Buddhist looks like or what a practitioner looks like or what someone who cares looks like, it will begin to kill the life of the practice. It will, not even the life of the practice, our life, our real life, our spontaneous life, our unconditioned life, with the overlay of beliefs and opinions and conditions and shoulds, the heaviness, or the, this is a different kind of seriousness than, than really the sobriety of seeing, oh, this is our life and how are we going to live it? Because part of the art and skill that we're learning here is how to care and not how not to care. How to take it seriously, but not too seriously in some way. How to let both live in us in a way that is not split, but is alive. And one, one of the kings in the time of the Buddha, he described the Buddha's followers as joyful, as elated, as jubilant, as enjoying the spiritual life, with faculties pleased, free from anxiety, serene, peaceful, and living with a gazelle's mind. And this is what I wish for you, a gazelle's mind. Such a, isn't it a nice image? Even if we don't know what it means? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, a gazelle, they're so delicate, right? They're not heavy. They can just... Actually, I've only seen them on the Discovery Channel. But (laughs) But I I got the transmission. But actually, I looked up in the commentaries. What what does it mean, a gazelle's mind? It means to be lighthearted or to take oneself lightly. And that, you know, even, one of, even when we think about awakening, it's called enlightenment. We might become lighter, actually, with awakening. And if you've, you know, the, you know, when I think about the most awakened people I know, they're like a breeze. Things don't stick. They're not heavy. They, and, they, and they devote themselves. They're totally... Uh, Sober and serious in a, in a mature way, but not in a heavy way. So my good friend and uh, beloved teacher, Ryokan, he said, Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. That there's a way we can care very deeply, but also see the transparency, the transiency of things. That it's not the heaviness that frees us, but the openness, the lightness. Anna spoke a little about the paradox of right effort, which means effort and effortlessness, or effortless effort or relaxed effort, 
And it's worth saying a little more because it's such an important part of a retreat because it's not fixed. It changes. The effort that's needed changes. It's fluid. It changes during the course of a retreat. And so it's not like, oh, you get, I get it. Oh, effortless effort. I got it on, you know, on the third day. Because it's a different effort that's needed on the fifth day or the ninth or the twelfth. Somebody came into an interview today and they said, oh, I'm really, I'm actually getting it. I'm getting how to make my effort without getting tight, without getting contracted. You know, the person said, they said they're um, a keto teacher, tried for years to teach them and she could never get it now. She's got a taste of it. And then when you have a taste, then you want to work with that. You want to see, okay, well, how is it to apply it now? What does it actually look like today, this sitting, this walking? Because it's not a static thing. It's not static right effort. And there are, there are some guidelines that are helpful. One of the guidelines I like to offer, especially for a long retreat, is something that was given to me. It was given to me... Uh, when I decided to swim Alcatraz the first time. And I swam in the bay for years and was very comfortable in cold water swimming, but I never, I wasn't that competitive and I wasn't that, I'm not that great a swimmer, but I love to swim. And, and um, three days before the Alcatraz swim, I just decided, oh, I'm gonna do it. So I didn't really have time to train, right? <laughs> just, you know, like, I kind of do things impulsively sometimes. And, um, and you, there's this great photograph of me going out on the boat. You know, there's like 50 people were being taken out on a boat to the island where you get dropped off to the side of the island and they say go and then you swim in. And, and I'm wearing, you know, the only, this is before people wore wetsuits in the bay, which I'm not so keen on. But so I'm just wearing, a, you know, a Speedo and a hat. You wear a hat. And the hat's got flaps, you know, because it's, it's cold and you want to keep your heat in. But the flaps are down, and I'm so scared. I look like a hound dog. I look totally unhappy in this photograph. <laughs> you know, one of those, how did I get myself, why did I want to do this? Right? But I did remember the advice I got from one of the senior bay swimmers. Because like, I said to him, he swam Alcatraz many times. I said, what, how should I do it? He said, start slow and finish slow. And in the middle, make your push. And that's a really good right effort. Start slow at the beginning. End slow. Don't, don't mm, 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 at the end. But in the middle, make your push. And of course, on a retreat, the making your push means to go slower, right? <laughs> <laughs> To be even more relaxed, <laughs> to be more, stay more sensitive to each moment. And I do like to, I generally, I'm definitely in the relaxed camp these days. When I was young, I was in the kind of macho, let's go, strive, I'm going to get it, I'll practice. If somebody was still sitting in the hall when I was there, I would look, I would peek, and I'm not going to move. And, you know, I'm going to stay and I walk longer and eat longer and kind of, <laughs> it's true. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, was, it was meditation as an Olympic sport, kind of competitive meditation. 
And, and, you know, and there's something you learn from that. You do learn something, because I got criticized recently. I got some feedback from my good friend Kitty Sarrow, who was a monk for 15 years and is a, he's a fierce practitioner, let's be honest with Kitty Sarrow. And I was saying, oh, relax, fall asleep in the hall if you want. We were teaching a retreat together. And after he said, can I give you a little feedback, you know? He said, it's good for people to work hard sometime. And I'm like, oh, he said, yeah. He said, I, I tell people, yeah, you can work hard. So we're telling you, that's it, you can work hard. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it's also a little bit serious because there is a way to work hard that's relaxed. There's a way to be very devoted and very committed to relax. And Kitty Sarrow knows it because he knows it from his own practice. He once spent three years basically in bed with illness as a monk practicing. And he knows how to practice in dire circumstances. But the other thing, when I was young, there was this um, teaching. I don't know if Jack said it. I Definitely Joseph said it at some point. They used to say, practice as if your hair is on fire. And I loved that. I thought that was cool, you know, like that's how to practice. But none of them ever quoted the original source, right? And I went back at some point and found the source. And what the source says, and this is from uh, uh, Dao Zen, who was, uh, died in 674, Zen master. He said, when the mind itself is peaceful and pure, then all that is needed is bold advance as if to save your head from fire. So what he's saying is when you're calm, when you're relaxed, when you're gathered and centered, the mind is peaceful and pure, then make your move. Don't make your move when you're tight and you're struggling. That's not a, might not be the best time to really make that slower effort, right? But when, when you're really collected, where can it go now? Where can it go now? What happens if I sit a little longer now? Or if you're in your walking path and you're really there and the bell rings, don't come back. See where it goes. Walk for an hour or an hour and a half or two. As long as you know that peaceful and pure and centered and grounded and present, See where the practice will take you. So effort and effortlessness, knowing and not knowing. One of the great paradoxes of practice, right? The one who knows, and then Trudy said, the one who doesn't know. It's really the paradox of knowing, which is so valued, which is one of the euphemisms for awakening, but also not knowing is highly regarded in contemplative life. And not knowing has to do with, or, or the, the, the uh, resolution of this, the supposed paradox is understanding how to use both our knowing and not knowing in each moment. How to let them inform each moment so that we can begin to wake up. There's a freshness, there's a reality to each moment. And we miss it if we think we know what's happening. We miss the freshness, we miss the aliveness, we miss the mystery. 
But to not use our knowing would also be a disservice. So for example, everybody, eyes open or closed, don't have to change posture, just feel your breath right now. Feel the breath, the breathing, however it is, you know it's the breath. And then for a moment, pretend you don't know what a breath is as you feel that experience, sense that experience. For me, when I, when I use that instruction, which I do when I'm practicing, especially when I start to get concentrated with the breath, all of a sudden I'll just throw it in. Okay, pretend you don't know what a breath is, Eugene. And then it, it's even more, it becomes even more alive, more mysterious, but more here at the same time, more fresh. My knowing, what I'm trying to do is not let, is help the knowing relax so it doesn't obscure the reality of now. Doesn't mean I don't know I'm breathing. I know I'm breathing, but I'm not letting the concept veil the direct experience of this breath, this one and only breath that's only here in this moment. And we can apply that to all of our experience. You know, when we say, okay, it's time for walking meditation, you know it's time to walk and you can know lifting, moving, placing, and at the same time, pretend you don't know what a foot is or what a lift is or what a move is or what a place is and let that not knowing bring you more intimately into the experience of a lift and a move and a place. Again, Ryokan, he said... The bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. The freshness that's available to us when the eyes and the ears are awake, when the heart is awake. The whole world is alive and new in each moment. It's actually the reality that we are of. Not even that we know, that we are that everything is fresh in this moment. Suzuki Roshi put it this way. He said, when I realized that no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. When I realized that no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. And now we all know that no moment could be repeated but he's talking about knowing it in its actuality, not as a concept. That means every moment becomes fresh, becomes real, becomes alive, because it is real, it is alive, in a mysterious and totally unknowable way, ultimately. I mean, unknowable meaning we can't really define it or explain it all, but we can be here as the witness of it, as the steward of it, and as an expression of this beautiful mystery. Ryokan, again, he says it this way. He says, and the word no, when he uses no, the first time is N-O, the first two times, then later it's K-N-O-W. He says, with no mind, the flower opens. 
and oh, with no mind the flower opens. With no mind the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the blossom opens. When the blossom opens, the butterfly comes. I do not know, K-N-O-W, I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. Not conceptualizing others, we naturally follow the way. Not conceptualizing ourselves. It's a little bit the flavor of what I was hoping in the metta yesterday when we did these different images, or two days ago, whenever it was, we did some different images of ourselves. We were offering metas of preteen and a teen and a young adult. And then I said, now feel what's here that's not an image, that's not an idea, that's not a concept. And you could feel it right now. What is it that's here that we can't even ultimately put words to? that sees and hears and tastes and touch and knows, that's experiencing your whole retreat. Knowing and not knowing, wonderful part of practice. Seeing what's here, knowing what's here, and letting go of the knowing to know it even more deeply in its mystery, in its transparency, in its effervescence. Another important, related, I guess, to right effort also is about doing and not doing, right? You've heard both those instructions from us. We say, well, do this, try that. You come into an interview, do this. Then sometimes you come and you say, no, no, don't do, don't do anything now. Let it be open, relax. You're getting, you're getting this beautiful paradox of doing and not doing. And there's a very beautiful reflection, and, and I'm going to speak to it about letting go. What does it mean to let go? How do we let go? You know, I, I'm going to read you a longish quote. It's from the Buddha, and it's a very personal reflection from the Buddha. And he's talking to his monks at the time, and I'll just leave it in the masculine for now. Actually, I won't totally. We'll see. I'll play with it. He's, he's saying monks, nuns, let's, do, let's make it a little more inclusive. I lived in refinement. He's telling them about before he was the Buddha. He said, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed and white lotuses bloomed and blue lotuses bloomed, all for me, all for my sake. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold and from heat and dust and dirt and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from that palace. Do I have to explain that? <laughs> he, he was living this princely life, you know, a life of his time and culture as a prince. But then he says, as he's telling them about how it was for him, how he had, you know, kind of everything, 
He says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred, the reflection, the contemplation occurred to me when an untaught ordinary person, himself subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged and he is horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious to himself that he too is subject to aging. If I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified or humiliated or disgusted or reactive, he says, on seeing another person who was aged, that would not be fitting for me. That would not make sense. And as I noticed this, as I contemplated this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. So he had a very big insight. The typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And then he went on again. He again kind of repeats this. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, total refinement, I, I contemplated this. When an untaught ordinary person, herself subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill, reacts and is horrified or humiliated or disgusted and is oblivious that she too is subject to illness. If I, who am subject to illness and not beyond it, were to react in that way, it would not make sense. It would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. So he had a second insight. First the intoxication with youth dropped away, then the intoxication with health. And then he goes on, even though I was endowed with such fortune and you know, good, good fortune in all these ways, if an untaught ordinary person was subject to death, if they were not beyond death, if they saw another who was dead and they reacted and they were humiliated or upset or disgusted or oblivious to the fact that they too are subject to death, if I was to react in that way because I am subject to death, this would not make sense. This would not be fitting for me. And as I noticed this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So these are three profound insights. And it's generally, the in, these are the insights around uh, sickness, old age, and death. And be careful how you hear this. Be careful how you hear this, because sometimes he, people hear this and they think there's a kind of condemnation of youth or health or life. But I think it's really significant. He doesn't say not to enjoy one's youth or to appreciate one's health or to love one's life. That's not what he... He doesn't say anything bad about them. What, what drops away is the intoxication with youth, the intoxication with health, the intoxication with life. And what is it that we're intoxicated by? What is that intoxication? The intoxication that falls away is the intoxication with permanency, is the intoxication with stasis, right? Nothing is static. 
Youth is not static. Health is not static. Life is not static. And we are intoxicated with permanence, with fixidity, with rigidity, with reification, with solidification, with concretization. We want things to be some way. We want them to stay some way. We're attached in this way. And so the Buddha lets go of trying to make what's impermanent permanent. He lets go of trying to hold on in this way, in this internal mind-heart way, this intoxication with fixidity of holding on to what is actually ephemeral and ungraspable and totally changing. Stasis. And you know, the opposite of stasis is ecstasis, which is ecstatic. This is the carrot now for you all, right? (laughs) If you let go of stasis, of permanence, life is ecstatic, meaning it's unfixed. And I don't necessarily mean ecstatic like when you take the drug ecstasy or, you know, you're dancing around like Rumi or something. But actually, the ordinary ecstasy of each moment, the ecstasy, the mystery, the freshness, the delight of being alive here. Now, what happened that it dropped away for him. What is it that allowed it to drop away? He, he reflected on it, he contemplated it, and then he understood something. This is the aha moment, right? Oh, I get it. Like, wait, doesn't, isn't everybody, you know, of course I want to stay young, right? How many people here have had that feeling? as you see your face start to drop a little in the mirror or the lines come, it's like, oh, maybe I should start thinking a little, you know, about Botox or something. You know, how can I, how can I stay young? And definitely all of us want to be healthy, you know. It's just natural. Animals want to be well. And, and of course, the same to live. The, the survival instinct is the most fundamental instinct we have as an animal. But the Buddha understood something. He actually said elsewhere in the suttas, he said this committed life is lived for the sake of seeing into things and understanding them. Understanding them in a profound, in a life-changing way. This is, this is the understanding, the knowledge. This is knowledge as gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. The knowledge of spiritual mysteries is what Gnosis is. Now, letting go is one of the great paradoxes of this practice, especially because we say so much about letting go. Did you notice the Buddha didn't use the term letting go? He didn't say, oh, and I let go of youth, I let go of health, I let go of life. No, he said the intoxication dropped away. 
he didn't do it. So again, this is the paradox between doing and not doing. He didn't do it. He contemplated it, and he contemplated it very deeply. He was very present. He was very awake to his body and his heart and his mind as he contemplated it, and something happened. Something mysterious happened. We don't do insight. We, we can't. You ever try to make an insight happen? That's dukkha. Really, that's dukkha. You can't do it. I mean, even if you know the insight, oh, everything's impermanent, I'm going to get it. You can't do it. You get it at whatever level you get it. But when, the, when it actually arises as, a, as a, a living, mysterious insight, it's always, we always say, oh, I didn't know it was going to be like that. Right? That's always one of the characteristics of true insight. Oh, I didn't know, I, I always thought it would be like this because we're trying to think our way to the insight. But when the insight arrives, it's like, oh, oh, this is cool. Wow. And the understanding is there, and the understanding brings together the paradox of whatever it might be. And, and it's natural for our minds to try to make it happen. It's, it's so much our our personality's eternal movement is to do things and try to fix things and try to make ourselves some way. And we can't do it, but we can, there are ways to practice so that the practice begins to reveal the truth. This is actually from a a tantric teacher in India named Devi, who talked about, a student came and said, you know, that they had trouble letting go. And she said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go, but how do you do it? How do you let go if you don't hold on to things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart? So there's, there's an important part of your inquiry here tonight. How do, you, how do you let go if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the experience of touch, of profound contact with our experience, with the universe, without a lot of mental commotion. So that's why we want the mind to begin to slowly get peaceful and pure and calm so that we can let our mindfulness touch our experience, both the bodily experience and the emotional experience and even the experience of mind, that it's contactful, it permeates the experience. And she says, if you let go, oh, she says, everything begins there, touching deeply, touching ourselves in the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, that can bring on turmoil, distress, dis-ease, if we let go before touching deeply. Many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened. The mind is never fully present. They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. And then she adds this kicker. So there can be a kind of uh, distancing from our experience that is a little bit of a false freedom. And it's okay sometimes. Sometimes that's good enough. But still, we don't want to just dissociate. That's not true freedom. 
we want to let what's here, the, the revelation of our actual aliveness, as Joseph pointed to in that first quote, what's here, when we become mindful of it, it becomes the path and we begin to metabolize it so that it reveals its dharmic nature. It, what it means is even the kalesas are not separate from true nature. There's nothing outside of the dharma. Our, our heartache, our fear, our grief, our anger, our contraction are also true nature. And, and, and it's calling for us to pay attention in a certain way so it can begin to real, the, reveal the deeper and deeper aspects of our being, of our true nature. It's more the surface, it's more the flotsam and jetsam, but still there's only true nature. That's all there is everywhere, always. And so this becomes our path. Even the dukkha becomes our path. It's why the path works. And she adds the kicker here a little bit. After she says, really touch everything fully, she says, when you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. Letting go occurs naturally. Now, there are two kinds of letting go, so let me clarify a little. One is the letting go of something that's actually not a problem. Okay, I get down to the meal. I've been sitting. I'm really in a great place. There's no more beats. You know, I can let go of the beats. <laughs> I'm in such a great place. Who cares about the beats? I'll let go of the beats. That's not really letting go. <laughs> you don't really care about the beats. You know, so you let go, right? You know that you're not letting go when something's grabbed hold of you, right? That's when, that's when we're interested. In, that's when we want to pay attention because that's when we can't let go. And in some sense, that's the, the real truth of it. We don't, we don't, we sh it might, it's most helpful not to think that we should be able to let go. No, when something's grabbed hold of us, some pain or some suffering or some difficulty or some confusion or some vulnerability or whatever it might be, that's our teacher. We want to pay attention to that now because that will teach us how to be mindful so that it can let go of us naturally. And, and so we pay homage in this way to the reality of now. We, we want to be authentic with what's happening because it will train us and it will teach us. Rumi put it this way. He said, pay attention. Pay, pay, uh, he's, here's a, excuse me. It begins, if God said... God, if God said, Rumi, pay attention to everything that has helped you enter my arms. And Rumi says, there would be not one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, no one act I would not bow to. And this puts a whole different understanding of doing and not doing and what we're doing here. We're doing in the service of not doing. We're being mindful in the service of letting go, but we don't do the letting go. The letting go begins to happen. And so if we're sitting perhaps with fear, right? I sit down, oh shit, fear again. I hate this. Hating, hating. 
oh, Vedana. They said, what's the Vedana here? Oh, it's yucky. I hate this. <laughs> oh, yeah, they said diversion. That's right, Vedana, aversion. I see, I'm averting, averting. I don't like it, don't like it. Oh, breathe. They said breathe with it. I'm now breathing with it. Oh, oh it's a little more relaxed. Oh, I like that. Ah, oh, that feels better. Relaxed. Relax. Oh, Vedana, good Vedana. This is the good stuff, the pleasant. I like it. Eugene said you could like it. Go for the pleasant. Okay, I'm going to go for the pleasant. Pleasant, pleasant. Oh, I'm feeling more calm now. Wow, the fear's not here. Where'd it go? I wanted to get to know it. He said I should really untouch it deeply. Oh, no, but it's not true now, so I'll stay with the calm. Okay, calm. Um, wow, I like the calm. It's sublime. It's sublime. And the breath, wow, it's just sweet. And then it starts to become, it's still. Oh, this is stillness. I feel like, oh, my body just dissolves. Oh, relaxed. That's what Marie said, relax. I'm relaxed now. I feel really open, but there's, there's not even much here. Quiet, peaceful, peaceful. Oh, those are one of, these are part of the seven factors that Jack talked about, I see. And then stillness. And then there's a sense of well-being that comes. And we didn't make it happen. Right? The well-being, we didn't do it. We stayed with the fear. We stayed with the aversion. We stayed present with the not being sure a few times about what to go with. And the Dharma keeps revealing itself if we're willing to stay present in this intimate way, touching it deeply. We don't do the Dharma. The Dharma does us. The Dharma does, we give ourselves to the Dharma. We surrender to the Dharma. We devote ourselves. And then the Dharma shows itself here, right? It doesn't, because it's not outside, it actually shows us its truth, its beauty, its preciousness, its, its blessings, its fruits here. Reality is self liberating. We don't do it. We stay present. We, we do our practice and let it happen, however it's going to happen. I'm going to end again from this woman, Alison Wright, because there's more to her story. I left you at kind of a, you know, you remember how they used to have those serials on TV or, or in the movies, and they leave you at the cliffhanger. I left you when... You know, she was fully present, but in bad shape. And she talks about how she got loaded onto a pickup truck and driven over a bumpy road to a, a, a little room where it was the clinic, you know, lined with cobwebs, dirt floor, cows grazing outside the door, no medical care in the area, no phones, no one, almost no one who spoke English, tended to by a boy who looked to be barely in his teens, sloshed alcohol into my wounds and without using painkillers stitched up my arm. The agony was more than I could endure. Six hours passed. 
No more help arrived. Opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. And that's when I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment or longing, and a perfect calm enveloped me, a bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. I realized that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me, and I no longer felt alone. Let's sit for a minute, please. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. A perfect calm enveloped me a bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. attention. We'll have uh, half an hour for a walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.